Lord has kind of put on my heart. I wanted to share uh, for, the, for the next couple of weeks. Um, this week I was planning, praying, and just doing some devotional work, and the Lord kind of led me in this path. And initially it was going to be a three-week series on the three parables in Matthew 24. And then as I was just unfolding some of the pre, um, pretext work, I thought, well, really we need a basis for where we're going so this week we're going to do a, a little foundational work, and then next week we're going to look at the three parables in Matthew 24 and 25 about the end times. And I hope that we can, uh, my prayer is, is just to, to uh, make you, to make us all thoughtful. This is uh, likely the end days. We are likely living in the last days that the Lord's word, um, so if we understand the, the Lord's word well and rightly, we can um, likely conclude that we are living in these last days. And right before Jesus goes to the cross, it's really the, the night before, the, the season before he goes and is arrested and goes to the cross, he takes his disciples up on the Mount of Olivet and he teaches them. And he teaches them about these last day's events. He teaches them about things to be watchful for. He teaches them about things that are going to be happening when the, life, when the last days are upon us. He teaches them about attitudes that are important during these last days and I just want to really just uh, press this into our hearts as we think about the, the season that we're living in. And while we, um, it's easy to get sidetracked and distracted by all the things going on around us, uh, and the devil is a great, is a master of that, that we recalibrate um, our thinking to the fact that we could be living in the last days. The Lord's return could be very soon, could be very, at any moment. And we want to be prepared for it. I would hate to, to leave here um, and have the Lord return and have anybody that's set underneath my preaching and go to uh, eternal damnation. That would be horrible. And, and so I, I wanted to, and really just my heart is, is to leave with uh, a challenge about the last days and where we're at. And so we're going to look at three, three passages of Scripture this morning that deal with this. Um, and we're going to just really... Uh, at a real surfacey level, look at some basic things about the last days. The title of this morning's message is The Harvest of the Last Days. It'll be from Matthew 13, 24, and 25. Again, Jesus is teaching his disciples on the Mount of Olivet. We know this, some of them, some have referred to this as the Olivet Discourse. And um, it's Jesus' teaching ultimately on what's going to take place in the end times. And we know this as the eschaton or um, the last days. We're going to look at Matthew specifically because his record of this, of this um, teaching is the most robust of all the apostles. While uh, Luke and Mark also record it, um, John does not, but Luke and Mark do, their, their record of it is not as comprehensive. And so therefore we'll look at the book of Matthew will be our main focus. There are three parables that we're going to build on tomorrow, next week, not this week, but next week. And they're in Matthew 24 and 25. There's a parable of two servants, a parable of 10 virgins, and a parable of three stewards. And we'll look at those next week and unfold what those mean and what those represent in these last days. We want to remember this, that 2,000 years ago, Jesus wrote a message to us in Revelation, and he says in it several times, I am coming quickly. 
And therefore, what we need to understand is that 2,000 years has passed since that proclamation was made. And so we're 2,000 years closer to I am coming quickly, which means that he is coming quickly. Amen? And he wants us to be prepared for that. He wants us to understand what that means. He wants us to understand what these events surrounding these last days are going to be like. I know there is some debate, and there might even be some debate over some of the things that I wrestle with this morning and and the next few weeks about whether this is the second coming or whether this is the rapture of the church and where does this fit into the time frame and all that's good to, to debate and argue over. The truth that I'm going to present to you, it doesn't really matter whether it's the rapture or the second coming. What matters is is the truth is clear that there is a last days for the church and there's a last days for the world and the principles surrounding the last days for both are similar, okay? Um, You might have in the last days for the world, there'll be an escalation of the events that the church is going to face before the church goes away. But ultimately, the principles are true, and they are, we are living in that season today where the Lord is doing some, some basic instruction and some basic unfolding of last day events. So in Matthew 13, we're going to look at a few parables, or really one parable with some explanation of that parable as the Lord explains this to his disciples He tells us in in verse number 24, this is the parable of the weeds. And understanding, let let, let me say this to you, understanding this parable will help you understand all of the parables. They're they're all really connected into this thinking. Matter of fact, at the beginning of Matthew 13, the Lord says to them about the parable of the the wheat, not the wheat, the, the parable of the seed and the soil. He says, if you understand these parables, you'll understand all parables. So this is crucial to the understanding of every parable in the New Testament. So let's work through it here. And I'm going to read a lot of scripture this morning, so it's going to be less me talking and more me reading. So just follow along if you would. In verse 24 of Matthew 13, it says, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plant came up and bore again, the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, do you not see, did we not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to them, do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barns. And so we have the parable here of the, of the weeds that are sown amongst the wheat. This is a parable as relates to the church that there will be, in, in the church, there will be uh, weeds growing amongst the wheat. There'll be uh, true converts, and there'll be false converts. There'll be followers of Christ and not followers of Christ. And the Lord tells his disciples that your job is not to harvest the, 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 wheat, the, the weeds and get them out of the way, but let them grow up with the, let them grow up with the wheat. And then, and then at the harvest time, which is that in the last, in the last days, there will be a harvesting 
And that harvesting will not be done by humans. That harvesting will be done by angels. And we'll look at that as we go forward here and we get an explanation of this in verse 36. Then he left the crowd and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. It's referring to believers. Those who are sown in the world to do the work of the Lord are sown by Christ, the son of man, and they're sown to, to represent and to reflect the kingdom. Goes on to say, the weeds that are sown are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. So the devil sows seed, sows, sows, sows thorns, throws, sows all of those other things among the wheat. In other words, he plants tares amongst the wheat. He plants goats amongst the sheep. The devil, the evil one, comes and puts those in there to, to bring destruction. The Bible says the harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin or all causers of sin and all lawbreakers. And throw them into a fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who He who has ears, let him hear. And he goes down in verse number 47. He gives another parable that describes or explains the previous parable. Where he says in verse 47, again the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be, so it will be at, the in, at the end of the age. The angels will come out, of, out and separate the devil from the righteous, the evil from the righteous, and throw them into a fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here we see the first thought, the first truth that we see about these end times is that the, the harvest time is a time of discernment or distinguishing. There are two categories of people in the world. It doesn't have to do with races, doesn't have to do with ethnicities, doesn't have to do with languages. There are two types of people in the world presented to us all the way back in the book of Genesis and those types of people or two categories of people that are being harvested are those who are righteous and those who are wicked. Those who are sinners and those who are not sinners. Those who are saints. These are two different types of people that are going to be here, always have been here after since the fall. These are two different groups of people that are represented in the world today. The righteous have been placed there by God for his purposes, and the wicked have been placed there by the evil one for their purposes. And we describe these people as believers and unbelievers. We describe them as saints and sinners. We describe them as law lovers and lawless people. In many different ways, the scripture distinguishes these people in the last days, but there are going to be two 
primary groups of people that will be on the earth during the last days just as there are today. Again, they are those who are followers of Christ and those who are not followers of Christ. We see this all around us today. Psalm 119 verse 165 says this, Great peace have those who love your law and nothing shall make them stumble. You'll notice that those who are believers are marked by a love for God's law, a love for God's word, a love for God's truth. The law wasn't, wasn't uh, as Romans 7 tells us, the law wasn't evil, the law was good. And as we come, as we come to appreciate God's law, we come to appreciate God's character, we come to appreciate who God is, it's evidence that we are, we are placed there for the purposes of God. On the other hand, in Matthew 7, verse 23, as Jesus talks about a group of people who say, we've done many miracles in your name, and we've prophesied in your name, and we've done all of these great signs in your name, and he says in verse 23, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who are workers of lawlessness. In other words, you who desire for there to be no law, you who want to put the law away. The law is good to those who are righteous, but it is not good to those who are unrighteous. These two groups of people are being distinguished. They're going to be defined. They're going to be marked out. They're going to become very, very, they're going to become very defined in the last days. There are going to be things that are going to make the righteous become more righteous, and there are going to be things that are going to make the unrighteous become more unrighteous. The wicked are are going to become wickeder. And those who are, are followers of Christ are going to become more righteous. Going to be, there's going to be a greater distinction in the last days. God is going to define those who are his. He's going to distinguish them. There'll be no question as to who the follower of Christ is. All, all that we live in today, the world that we live in with the, with the wiping away of the line between a believer and an unbeliever, the, the washing away of all distinctions of Christianity will be done away with by the Lord himself and his angels because he will wipe, all, he'll, he'll wipe that blurry line away and put a distinct line again between God's people and the people of the devil and he will do it by tribulation. This is really, truly what the whole book of Revelation is about. God distinguishing those who are truly believers and those who are not truly believers. And we, don't, we don't have a clue what persecution is. When we compare what we're going through today to what, we're go, what they will go through in Revelation, we don't have a clue what, what, what's going to take place in the world. We, we don't even touch it, yet we waver all the time. We waver a lot. We're, we're, we're weak and passive when it comes to the things of God. And the Lord is going to distinguish and define those who are his, his, and he's going to push those who are not his away so that there will be a distinction of those who are not his. The end times, the last days, is going to be a time of sorting out the good fish from the bad fish, the wheat from the tares, the goats from the sheep. That's what it's all about. It's, about, it's a time of discernment. And there's two good things that can happen if you're someone that's here that sees yourself as a follower of Christ. There's two good things that can happen from this. Again, one would be that you would become more, a greater follower of Christ based upon the persecution that you face. The other would be that you realize that you're not a follower of Christ. 
based upon your inability to stand in the face of persecution. Two categories of people being harvested under the harvest is discernment. The end of the age is, is the harvest time. The end of the age is the end of this age. We live in what's known in scriptures as the last days. It began when Christ, when Christ came to the earth was the beginning of the last days. And it will conclude when Christ comes to the earth a second time. The angels are the ones who will harvest. And we don't have to worry about harvesting. It's something that the angels will do. They are the ones who will reap the earth. They are the ones who will harvest the earth. This is why when you read through the book of Revelation, you will find the use of angels throughout the book of Revelation. Angels are one of the main ministers in the book of Revelation, ministering the condemnation and the chastening that God puts upon his people. Because they're the harvesters. They're the ones who are going to make distinction as to who are God's and who are not his. Revelation 14, verses 15 and 16 says, And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, and said, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he sat on the cloud, he swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. The angels are going to reap the earth. They're going to harvest the earth. They're going to harvest the earth after or as a part of defining or distinguishing the earth. This harvesting process is going, to be, is going to take place through tribulation. Trials and heartaches are going to come upon the earth. And those who become greater followers of Christ will be identified as, as his. And those who forsake him will be identified as not being his. May I submit to you this morning and, and encourage you that this is a time of evaluation This is a time of humility. It's a call for us to look within our own hearts and to see where we stand with God. It's a call to look in our own hearts and to be honest about where we're at and to be honest with God about it. James tells us that there will be many in the last days who will deceive their own selves. The Bible tells us in Proverbs that every man's way is right in his own eyes. This is a time for us to, to look to God's word and to see his truths and to understand what he says about those who walk in wickedness and lawlessness. There's a, there's a, there's a, move, of, there's a move of heresy across our culture today that is amongst Christians to lawlessness. So we see this distinction taking place, the goats and the tares being separated. All this is a part of the last day events. The trials and tribulations that are going to be brought on the earth are going to be meant to define those who are Christ and those who are not. So that when we stand before God on judgment day, according to Romans 1, there will be no one who will have an excuse. No one who will have an argument. It will be proven clearly, even on this earth, those who are followers of Christ and those who are not. If you'll go with me to Matthew 24, we learn our second lesson about the last days from another uh, teaching of the Lord on the Mount of Olives. This is, again, this is the time right before his crucifixion. And we'll read uh, chapter 24, the very end in verse 36 to the end of the chapter, 
or close to the end of the chapter. The Bible says number two, but concerning the day and hour, no one knows. And the second thought is simply the harvest time is unknown to all but God. The harvest time is unknown to all but God. In other words, the last days is not meant to be known to us. The times and the dates are not to be known to his people. And there's a reason for that. We'll look at that here in a moment. It says, not even the angels of heaven, not even the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. In other words, we can look at it this way. They were living as if there were no law. They were living as if there were no God. They were living as if there were no regulations. They wanted, quote unquote, the freedom. And they, did, and they refused to acknowledge the judgment of God until the first drop fell out of the sky. Can you imagine being there in that moment? Where, Mo, uh, Moses, where Noah has just preached for 120 years that the earth is going to be flooded with water. The people have never seen this before. They refuse to listen to his, to, his, to his preaching and to his instruction. He continues to preach 120 years. That'd be a long time to preach with no converts, wouldn't it? He did it, 120 years. And can you imagine the moment that that rain began to fall from the sky? And the Bible says that the earth opens up and water comes up from the earth. What a horrific moment. What a horrible moment. But the Bible says this, up until the moment, and we know what happens before the first drop of rain comes out. Anybody know what happens before the first drop of rain comes? What happens to the ark? The door is closed, isn't it? So God closes, God gives them 120 years of warning coming directly from the word of God through his, through his servant Noah, Right? preaching the truth for 120 years to probably some religious people, but to obstinate people who wanted their liberty and lawlessness. And then the first drop of rain comes down and that door was not going to be opened. Right? But this is where we live today, folks. People live in that, in that, with that mentality. God is not just God is not holy. God is not going to judge anybody. And then we're going to wake up one day and the rain's going to start to fall and we're going to be like, let me in the ark and there's not going to be any ark to get in because the door is going to be shut. And a lot of it's going to boil down. It's not, it's not, I mean, Noah didn't falter in preaching his message, but I would say that we faltered in preaching our message. God is just and God is holy and there's going to be a day when the rain's going to start falling. He says, then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. In other words, it's going to catch one off guard and not catch the other off guard. One's going to be taken in judgment and one is going to be left in. One is going to be saved. Uh, Stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would, not, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. 
The time of the harvest is unknown to us. It's only known to God. It even tells us in the scriptures that it's unknown to the Son. It's unknown to the angels. Only God the Father knows the time of his Son's return, and he will, and he will reveal that to no one until the event happens. You turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. While we cannot know the day and the hour, we are meant to know the season. The reason why he tells them that it will be like the days of Noah and the days of Lot is because he expects them to be discerning. He tells them, you can look at the sky and you can tell when it's going to rain, right? You can look at the sky and you can tell when a storm is coming. You're able to discern those things, but he he rebukes his disciples for not being able to look at the seasons and know when the Lord's return is. We we ought, as believers, what he's calling us to in in the the, um, Matthew passages is that we ought to be discerning about the season of the Lord's return. We ought to be able to look and see when the Lord's return might take place, not knowing the day or the hour. We're not meant to know the day or the hour. He says, now concerning in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, does that sound familiar? Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Sounds like the door being shut, doesn't it? He says, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who are drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for the helmet, the hope of salvation. And so we see here in, this, in these verses, and we can read on, but because of time we won't, we see here that we're, we're not to know, we cannot know the day and the hour, which means we're not to be, we're not to be uh, date setters, and we're not to, mit, to make predictions of when the Lord is going to return or when the Lord is not going to return. At the same time, we're to be able to watch and be discerning to know when the Lord's return is going to happen, what season of life it's going to happen in. And he tells us it back in Matthew 24, it'll be like the days of Noah and like the days of Lot. He tells us in, in uh, the, the Gospel of Luke, I think chapter 21, the, he says that it will be like the times of Lot. So the times of Noah and the times of Lot. And we think about those two seasons to know what uh, season, what time frame, if you will, the Lord's return will be. The days of Noah were, were a season where people lived ob- oblivious to God. And they lived as if there were no justice. There were, there were no God to judge them. They, they lived as if God is no longer watching them or watching down upon them. They were eating and drinking and working and marrying and sleeping and playing. And they were doing all of this as if God did not exist. As if there were no consequence for their actions. They lived as if there were no consequences for their actions and no God to praise for the blessings that they had received. And then we look at the 
we look at Sodom and Gomorrah or the times of Lot, they did not just live absent of God's, um, of God's existence, but they lived, they lived in blatant rebellion against God, didn't they? The people of Sodom and Gomorrah lived in blatant rebellion against God. They lived in all sorts of, of horrific sins, sins that we see prominent in our world today, sins that are around us everywhere, sins that are being sponsored and promoted on, on every advertising source that there is. The sins that were taking place in Sodom and Gomorrah, I would say, have been escalated to where we live at today. And, we, and, we're, and we're no different in thinking that God's judgment's not going to fall. Lot had to go in and he had to drag his own daughters out. His son-in-laws wouldn't come. He had to drag his own daughters out of that horrible, wicked place. Why? Because they didn't believe that God was just. They didn't believe that God was holy. And that whole place got destroyed by God. And all the warnings were there. But they were rebellious and they refused, not only refused to, to understand God's existence, but they refused to, 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 to live in any way submitted to his calling. They hated his order. They hated his plans. They hated his purposes. The world today hates God's order. They're doing everything to uproot and undermine the order of the family. They're doing everything to undermine and uproot the order of marriage, the order of the church. They're doing everything to undermine and, up, uh, and uproot everything that God ordered. You go back to Genesis chapter number one, two, and three, and, and the whole book, and you see how God ordered things, and what you see today is, a, is an absolute rebellion to everything that God put into place. And it's not just happening in the world, it's happening in the church. And we're doing it thinking that somehow God is not just anymore. And, and it's the same exact thing, 120 years of preaching, they thought God wasn't just, and then the rain started to come down. And then people started trying to beat the door of the ark down, but it wasn't going to open. They embraced all different types of destructive activity. They wanted to do anything and everything to destroy what God had created. They wanted to do anything and everything to destroy his holiness, to destroy his, his purity, to destroy any representation of him that was good. So they throw in sexual immorality and idolatry and the devil is just planting all of these things all over the world around us and putting it in front of our faces on advertisements and on television and, and everywhere and just, just casting it at us and casting it at us and casting it at our children and doing everything he can to undermine any respect and reverence for the God who created us. To what he's doing. It's all around us. And we act like nothing's going to happen. Something is going to happen. Because God is still a just and holy God. And he is going to distinguish his people. He's going to separate them out. Think of it this way. God said in his commandments, you shall not worship any other gods but me. Right? Satan said in his fall, I will be God. We have said in our foolishness, there is no other God except me. Mankind has become the God. Mankind has set themselves up on the throne of God. 
And if you'll remember, as our, our groups have studied through the book of Revelation, the greatest blasphemy that ever will take place in, in the history of the world will be the moment when the Antichrist puts himself in the temple, sitting on the throne of God as God. And it's in that moment that, Satan, that God will pour out wrath upon this earth like it's never felt before. Why? Because no one will sit on God's throne. What will the end times be like? It'll be like people living like God doesn't exist. And it will be like people living in blatant rebellion against God. No regard for his rules, no regard for his ways, no regard. Listen to me, folks. God's way is better. It's not just the right way, it's the better way. It's the good way. It's the healthy way, isn't it? Do we believe that? Jesus said to the people in the Gospels, you worship me with your mouth, but where is your heart? What does he say? Your heart is far from me. You need to be evaluating. This is going to be, the end times is going to be a distinguishing time. There's going to be a line drawn in the sand that's not going to be blurry. He tells us in regards to not knowing the day and the hour, he tells us a few commands to just give you, and this brings us to our second thought under this point. We should always be watching and ready. His return will be unexpected, according to the text here. But remember this, something that is, unex- something that is unexpected does not imply that, it must be, that we must be unprepared. Just because something is unexpected doesn't mean we're to be unprepared. We're to be prepared for the unexpected. We can't know the day and the hours of Christ's return. We can know the seasons of Christ's return. And we can be prepared for the season of Christ's return. It's a grace that God gives us, gives us the warning. 2 Timothy 4.8, henceforth, Paul talking here at the end of his life, henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give will reward to on that day not only to me but also to all those who love his appearing and it just means being watchful for him those who are being watchful for him the last thing i want you to look at this morning with me is in a, another parable found at the end of chapter 25 not really a parable but just a teaching and it is that it is that the harvest is final and forever and we look at this text again here here's what he says Verse 31 of 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all of his angels with him, then he will will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on the right, but the goats on the left. The king will say to those on the right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Notice here all of these things that these people do. Notice as we compare this to the, remainder, to the rest of Scripture, we know that these are not ways in which the salvation is merited. These are identification marks. These are ways in which a righteous person is identified. It means that these are things that we ought to see in our lives. 
things that we ought to see in other believers' lives. These are things that should be manifested in the people of God's lives. He says, then the righteous, again, notice the term righteous there, not righteous on the basis of these works, righteous on the basis of Christ's work for them, yet the manifestation of that work is seen in all of these things. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, for for by grace we are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is a gift of God, not of works, so that no man can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. We've been created, we've been planted, as we read back in Matthew 13. We've been planted to do good works. We've been placed here as a reflection of Christ. We've been made righteous on the inside, and we are reflecting the righteousness that within, is within us in Christ on the outside. And this is evidence, or let me say it this way, this is distinguishing of those who are, are true followers of Christ. That there would be no question of God. Was there any question as to God judging the people of Noah's day? When for 120 years he tells them, I'm going to send a storm and you need to get in this boat. And then they all shake their fist at God and say, we will not get in the boat. Is there any question of their, of their deserving of what happened to them? It's going to be the same in the last days. There'll be no question as to the worthiness of those who are walking in rebellion against God. The righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when do we see you a stranger and, and, uh, and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it unto me. Then he will say to those on the left side, depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and we did not minister to you? He will answer to them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. There are two ends. There are two eternities. There is eternity of condemnation, and there is eternity of blessing. There is eternity of consequences for our own sins, and there is an eternity of grace, an eternity of peace with God, an eternity of conflict with God. These are two eternities that one One of these two eternities, every man will face. Every man will face one of these two eternities. The workers of lawlessness are the ones who wish to live without law. The ones who wish to reject the fact that God is just and holy, to refuse to accept him for who he really is. You see, folks, the reality of it is, is the holiness of God and the justice of God and the righteousness of God is what will drive you to the feet of Jesus. A denial of his holiness, and a denial of his justice, and a denial of his righteousness is what will make you want to make Jesus your friend, but not lead you to his feet. It is those who make it is those who identify and recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord and Jesus Christ is Savior to all of those who 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 submit to him and 
and believe in him. It is not a making Jesus your friend. It is not you have a new partner to make yourself successful. Jesus Christ came to save the world from their sins. And the apostle Paul says, of whom I am the chief of. There is an eternal judgment coming because our God is just and holy. He will not look over one. He, the Bible says he will not pass over one sin. That means every sin ever committed on the face of this earth will be judged perfectly righteous by a perfectly holy God. The question is, is did Jesus pay for yours or will you pay for them? Eternal condemnation is for those who reject Christ identified as lawless, identified as unbelievers. These are guilty sinners who refuse to repent and turn to Jesus. The judgment that they will face in Matthew 18 is called eternal fire. In Matthew 25, it is called eternal punishment. In Mark 9, it is said the worm will not die there and the fire will not be quenched. And the worm is another term to describe humanity, that they will be crawling over each other like worms would. The worm will not die. There will be no death in hell from the perspective of, of, of no longer experiencing the pain and punishment that you will face there. It is eternal. It is forever. Because there is no payment that you can put forth that will sufficiently satisfy the wrath of God towards mankind's sin. And there will be no question as to the guilt of those who are lawless and reject and rebel against God. There will be no argument. There will be no justification. 2 Thessalonians 1, it is called the punishment of eternal destruction. Jude 7, it's called the punishment of eternal fire. Revelation 14, it is called the smoke of their torment, and it will rise up forever and forever. And Revelation 20, it says that they will be tormented day and night forever and forever. This is the judgment of God for those who have rejected Christ, for those who refuse to place their faith in him, to surrender their hearts to him, to place their life in his hands. No one wants to face this, but every one of us ought to be evaluating our heart. Self-deception is a real thing. Those who are thinking that they're followers of Christ, who think that they've submitted to Christ, who think that they've given their life to Christ, but yet there are no fruits of that at all evident in their life. Matter of fact, the fruits that are evident in their life are fruits of worldliness and lawlessness and a love for sin and not a love for God. Yes, we wrestle with sin as believers, but we no longer love it. The Bible says in John chapter number three that the evil love darkness rather than light. The righteous come to the light. Eternal condemnation for those who reject Christ. The end for believers is eternal blessing for those who accept Christ. These are repentant sinners. Those who have recognized themselves as sinners and have confessed this to Christ and have pleaded with him for forgiveness, mercy, and grace. The mercy that says, I will no longer hold your sins against you because Christ has paid for them. The grace that says, I will transform you and make you a new creation, a new creature to where not only you will no longer be bound by the punishment of sin, nor will you be bound by the power of sin. Some of you are no less 
victorious over sin now than you were before you were saved. There's a problem with that. There's a problem with that. Because the Bible teaches we are new creations. We're indwelt by the Spirit of God. There's a new strength within us. Yes, we will wrestle with sin, but we will wrestle victoriously. Eternal blessing for those who accept Christ, those who are conforming into the image of Christ, and those who unknowingly do the work of Christ. It's interesting. I've always found it to be interesting about this text of Scripture. When the Lord goes through all of the things that the righteous person does, the righteous person's response is, when did we do these things? It is an absolute statement of humility. It is a statement of we've not done anything that makes us worthy of your goodness and your grace. Even though they had performed all of these wonderful things that even God in heaven recognizes and acknowledges them for, their response to it is humility. Lord, we've never done anything worthy of you. This is a sign of a believer. It's not, Lord, we've done many miracles in your name and we perform many signs and wonders in your name and we cast out many devils in your name. And he says, I don't even know you. That's the second group of people here who says, when he says, you didn't do these things, and he's like, when do we not do these things? They don't even recognize the need. And those who are truly righteous recognize the need and fulfill, fulfill it and never recognize that they fulfilled the need. It's the humility of the heart of a believer that is evidence of them being followers of Christ. John 10, it's called eternal life. They are told that they will never perish, and they are told that they will have abundant life. First John chapter number 2, this is called life forever. John 3, it's called everlasting life. In John 4, we are told that we will never hunger or ever thirst again. The blessings of the Lord are eternal blessings. They're forever. We will be with him. They're not even just blessings for eternity, but they are blessings for now. The Bible says that when we become a when we become a follower of Christ, we are blessed with his life. Eternal life is not our life. Eternal life is his life that we become a possessor of. We become a benefactor of. We get his life. Just like he got our life when he hung on the cross. Eternal blessing for those who accept Christ, repent of their sins, and by faith become his followers. Like the ark, this is a final and forever harvest. There is no second chance. When we pass from this life into the next, there is no second chance. When the Lord returns, there'll be no second chance. Your opportunity is now. Your opportunity is today. The Apostle Paul says in Corinth, to the church at Corinth, he says, now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. Please, my heart pleads with you this morning. Don't leave believing that God is not a just and holy God, that he doesn't hate sin and will not judge it righteously. Please know that he will. In the same way that he destroyed the world with a flood, he will destroy the world again with a fire. And he will cast all those who have rejected his ark and all those who have rejected his son into a place of eternal condemnation. But he has offered to everyone the eternal life in and through his son. He has sent an ark. He has sent an ark. And his name is Jesus. 
And he says, if you will be in Christ and Christ will be in you, you will be delivered from the flood that is to come. John 5 and verse 28 and 29 says it this way. Do not marvel at this for the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Where are we at today? The harvest is soon. We don't know the day or the hour. We do know the season and we know that the season is soon. The times are, are ripe, maybe overripe for the harvesting. We know that's true. We must be ready. The Lord is going to separate his from the others. When the tribulation comes and the trial comes, the heartache comes, stay true to Christ. Follow him. And know this, that in the end, all those who are in Christ will receive eternal blessing and all those who are not in Christ, eternal judgment. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word is true. Even when it's difficult to understand, comprehend, or, or Lord, even believe because of the days that we live in and there's been so much thrown at us that is untrue. I pray that your spirit would awaken us to the truths of your word, that we will understand that we are living in the last days and the Lord is going to distinguish the sheep from the goats and the wheat from the tares. He's going to make it clear those who are his followers and those who are not his followers. And I pray, dear God, that we would prove to be your children through this time. Not that we might be saved, but Lord, because we are saved. I pray that everyone who is here will be ready, be watchful, be discerning about these times and these seasons, that we would be evangelistic in our outreach as well, not just trying to love the world by giving them a big hug, but Lord, trying to love the world by giving them the truth. Eternity matters for both the saved and the lost. Please, dear God, help us. Help us to embrace your truth and to glorify your name. It's in your name that we pray.